0: Uh, Death is arrested and our life can begin in Christ. Aren't you thankful for that truth tonight that we can be alive in Christ? We can be free in Christ. Yeah, you can clap. Sorry, that was a little bit like, oh, can I clap? Am I loud? Am I loud? Yes, you can clap about that. That's something to be excited about, that we can be free in Christ. There should be a response in our life to that. Hey, before we get started tonight, I want to ask you to do something for me. Would you take out your portable device, your cell phone, if you have an iPad, just take it out with me. And here's what I'm asking you to do. If you would send a text message to 77977, and in the text message, that's who you're going to call and you're going to text, but then you're going to put in there CC Wired app. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to download our brand new app. We're excited to offer this app an opportunity to really engage and be informed about what's happening. Uh, We have our old app. If you have the old app, delete that. This is the one you're going to want. And this is a chance for us to make sure we're communicating effectively with you about the upcoming events and things that are taking place. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it in a moment. But take a look at this video that tells you about this exciting new opportunity to stay connected with what's happening in our body. Take a look. 고맙습니다. <목소리> <목소리> All right, again, that's CC Wired app to 7797. And what that will do is send you a link and you can download that app. It's absolutely free. And it's some exciting things on there that we hope will help you out. Uh, The events that are happening, the things that are happening nearest to the date, you're going to be able to see those right on the home page. We also have a sermon page. Our podcasts are on there. So you'll be able to go right to your phones, right to your iPads, and be able to see uh, whatever content that you want to see there. Uh, As well as our hope is to add message notes there. We have uh, kind of trialing that right now, but we'll have our message notes available that hopefully you'll be able to fill in right there. So you, you can grab a program and then put that back, but, but you can also keep your notes right on your phone, so that's going to help along with the uh, weekend experience. All the events, classes, our community groups, you're going to be able to register right on the app. And so uh, when we have our launches, you can go right to the app, register for those things, and be involved in that. We also have some polling data that you can be a part of a poll. Questions like, do you think the pastor's good-looking or not? We're going to have those polls out there because we want to know the answers to that. Um, okay, not that one. Uh, we're not. I wouldn't dare allow that to be put on there. But we'll have other ones on there, just to say, hey, what'd you think of that? Or, or uh, opportunities for you also to to send to social media some things, as well as our giving. Uh, if you give. That giving is now connected right to our app. You can set up your account right there. Uh, Very easy to do. I've already done it, and I'm able to see a receipt right there of all the times I've given. I'm able to see exactly what's going on, and then I can give right to a campus, whatever campus I feel led to give at. And so uh, you can go on there, check it out. It's very intuitive, and we're excited to be able to launch that in our uh, secure giving portal and our our app. So we're excited about that. We hope that will be a great benefit to you and to our body to be able to communicate most what's happening. There's a lot of things that go On here, a lot of things that happen that uh, many people say. Well, I wish I would have known that. Well, this is a chance for you to stay up to date uh, with what's happening. Well, let's dive in here this evening. You would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Habakkuk chapter two. Habakkuk chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us here this evening to page 785, Habakkuk chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that every person has a copy of the Scripture. God is revealed himself through the pages of scripture written by human authors and in the original languages without error. And now we have them in our language to be able to understand uh, what God has spoken and who God is. We started a series last week that we've called Habakkuk and what it looks like to watch and to wait, what it looks like to, to really be in a season, a period, where you're wondering what in the world God is doing. We said that Habakkuk's name, the prophet Habakkuk, his name literally means to embrace or to wrestle. That Habakkuk himself as a prophet in the Old Testament, about 600 B.C., was wondering what in the world God was doing. What he believed contradicted what he was seeing. What he was experiencing seemed to run contrary to what he believed about the character of God. And there were really three major problems that he saw. The first one was that he looked at his own people in Judah and he saw them returning to idolatry. And he said, how in the world are God's people not following God? And so it created a problem within him. The second thing was that he went to pray to God, went to God for the answer, and he was a little confused by the answer. Remember, God in chapter 1 responds and says, here's what, i got a plan. i got a plan for you. I'm going to send Babylon to actually help restore and judge Judah. And so we find that Habakkuk had a problem not only with Judah, but now he has a problem with God. And that led to a third problem, that is the theological problem of how could God use what is wicked to help what is bad? How could God use a wicked people like Babylon to help God's people come back to him? How could God do that? And so we have this problem that permeates this small little power-packed book of the prophet of Habakkuk, We said last week that this little book is written in judicial language. It's written like a, a judge and jury. And, and what Habakkuk gives us is this kind of idea where he says, hold on, your honor, I, I object to that. Habakkuk, over the next few chapters, is going to object to what God spoke in chapter 1. He's going to say, God, I don't think you can use what is evil to actually do what is good. There's no way that you can accomplish your plan through evil people like the Babylonians. There's no way that you can do that. And so he's going to challenge God a bit. And we're going to see his response here in Habakkuk chapter 2. How could God use this? Now, before we dive in, I want to remind you of what we said last week. This is so important. What I love about the book of Habakkuk is it reminds us that God welcomes our questions. Nowhere in this book, in this entire moment where Habakkuk is going to question God, does God come to Habakkuk and say, Habakkuk, who do you think you are? Do you not know that I am thou God? And you are but a little wormist. I don't know why we think God speaks King James, but in our minds, right, we think he speaks his proper English. But God doesn't ever scorn him. God doesn't ever come against him. You know, one of, one of the big moments in my journey uh, was when my dad passed away. I've shared that with you before. My dad passed away when I was eight years old. And I came to know Christ on February 1st of 1986. I was eight. And it was two months later that my dad passed away. And I remember the questions. I remember in the, the, my bedroom raising my fist up to God and saying, God, how could you do this to me? Like, I give you my life, and this is what you do. You take my dad. My dad battled emphysema. All that I knew of his life, he was in a bed in our little living room in a row house in the city. And I remember him laying in that bed. And, and I would get in the bed with him, and we'd watch cartoons. And that was about my interaction with my dad. But I remember my mom saying something to me very vividly. My mom, a very godly woman, just recently, uh, now in her 80s, just had a birthday recently. And, and, and she said this to me and I was 8 years old. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember her saying... She's saying, Dave, God is big enough for you to cry out to. I remember in my room just being distraught over the fact that God would take my father from me. Like, how could God do that? And we're, here we are, Father's Day, celebrating dads. And how could God do that? How could God take a, a dad, especially when you, when you just accepted him? And I remember my mom saying, God is big enough to handle those cries. God is big enough to be angry at. God is able to handle your anger. And I remember getting, feeling that freedom to be able to raise my fist in the air and saying, God, I have no clue what you're doing. I don't, I don't understand your ways. But it was a call to trust. You know, all of us feel that tension, don't we, at times in our lives? We, we, we feel that tension. And we wonder, can I really say this to God? Can I really bring this to God? And what God does is he puts this little book in the Bible to show us that it's okay to ask him tough questions. Why? Because doubt is one of God's most common tools to drive us into deeper faith. When we doubt, it causes us to search out answers. And what doubt is, is doubt is a foot in the air ready to take a step forward or to take a step back depending on whether we trust or not. Doubt can be a valuable tool. A question can be a valuable tool if it drives us to the right answer, to the right source. Now you know and I know that there are many opportunities to doubt in our world, isn't there? I mean, the world is filled with troubles. If you don't know that, you haven't lived yet. Right? Think about it. I mean, there's loss that happens. There's loneliness that occurs. There's depression that creeps in. There's despair that overwhelms. There's people that we love who die. There's diseases that are real. You can lose your job tomorrow. Your sins can begin to catch up with you. On and on I could go about the way we see disappointment and troubles in our world. But can I tell you something? If we're being raw tonight, if I can just really speak forthrightly, I I, I believe the greatest trouble, though, the greater trouble that we experience isn't all of those things. Yes, we experience loss. Yes, we experience heartache. Yes, we experience depression. But the harder part of this is when we feel as if God is silent. It's that, not that we, we, we all know we experience those things, but, but what do we do when God seems silent? What do we do when God answers in a way we didn't expect? See, that's more difficult, isn't it? Like, we all know that loss happens. We all know that difficulty pervades. What we don't understand is when God doesn't respond in a timely fashion. What really makes it more difficult is when we don't understand what in the world God is doing and why he chose to do it that way. Sometimes those questions are actually bigger, greater questions in our lives. So the question we want to answer or ask tonight is, what do I do in those moments? What do I do in those moments where it seems that life has gone haywire? What do I do in those moments where it seems as if God is silent? What do I do in those moments where God has answered in a way that I didn't expect or want? When it seems like he's contradicting what would be the better path? What do I do in those moments? Rebecca gives us insight into what he did in that moment in his life. Take a look with me, Habakkuk chapter two, we're gonna be begin in verse one. It says, I will take my stand on my watchpost, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now I want to look at three specific points from this small few verses, three verses here of chapter 2 that I believe give us insight into how we should s- respond when things don't go the way we expect, when things tend to go haywire. Now these verses, if we're reading and studying Habakkuk, these verses tend to act as what I would call the hinge point of this book. What do I mean? It seems at this point a door begins to turn. A do- uh, the hinge begins to open. All of a sudden we see the angst of Habakkuk confronted by the reality and truth of God. So this really acts as a, a, a pivotal moment in the story of Habakkuk. So I want to look at these three points. Number one, we see this. Notice we see that, that Habakkuk goes in the haywire, in, in the questionable moments, he goes and watches See, what, what Habakkuk does is he shifts his perspective, and you and I are called to watch, to shift our perspective in the moments we don't understand. Now, a couple of things that pop up here. Notice, Habakkuk is not a determinist. Now, you may say, Dave, what does that mean, determinist? Habakkuk understands that God is sovereign, but God is not controlling us like we're robots. This is so important. Especially we who, who have a reformed background, right? We believe God is sovereign. We believe that he is predestined, he's he is elected. These words that are biblical words, we believe that God is in control. But what we don't believe is that God controls every bit of us in a way that we're robots, that we have no responsibility. That is not what we believe, right? We don't, we're not determinists. We don't believe that God then says, okay, I want you to move your finger like that. All right, now I want you to pull it back, right? God is not a determinist. That's not the way he works. Here, Habakkuk proves that. Because Habakkuk is able then to respond the way he should respond. Habakkuk actually responds rightly here in many ways. And notice how he responds. He's not a marionette on a string. No, he's responding honestly to God, isn't he? He's being very human with God. And notice where he goes. He doesn't run. God says Babylon's coming. Notice he doesn't run. Think about, I don't know about you, but if I had heard that Babylon was going to come, remember we said that Babylon, in fact, in chapter 1, God describes them. If I was Habakkuk, I don't know about you, I'd go gather my family, I'd pack my bags, and I'd get out of Dodge. I might warn a few people along the way because I'd be a prophet. But I would jet out of there. I would say, anybody want freedom, safety, come with me. The rest of you, good luck. And I would jet out of there. I'd run. Habakkuk doesn't run, does he? Knowing this information he doesn't run. Notice he doesn't hide. Notice he doesn't bail. What does he do? Instead, he literally gets himself up. And this is literally, he gets himself up, figurative, figuratively and literally, he goes to the tower. He makes himself available in the tower. I love this word here. It says, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. The word here, tower, in Hebrew, is the word Hebrew word, metzor. And it literally has the idea of a stage or a, a siege enclosure. Uh, Usually cities had walls around them. Jerusalem had a wall around it. And at the corner of those walls, there were these, these stations where you could get up in the towers. And you could look out for a lot of different things. You could look at the weather. You could look at the enemy. You could look at what's happening on the horizon. You could see what's taking place out in front of you. These towers were very important. You could see an ambassador or a king coming to visit. These towers played an important part. Notice what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk says, I'm going to go to the tower, I'm going to go to the watch post, and I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to look out. I'm, I'm going to watch at what is happening. I'm going to look out. In fact, notice what it says next in verse 1. And look out to see what he will say to me. I, I love this, this word, to look out. It's the word in Hebrew, safah, And it literally means to stand at the ready. It's not just that he's going to gaze out and have a coffee. He is standing at the ready. He's looking for what's taking place. He is becoming a spy, looking out for the enemy that is to come. Now, whether this was literal or not, we're, we're not sure. I actually believe it's somewhat literal that he actually went to the tower because the city would have had towers, and he was actually began to watch. Whether it's figurative or literal, what we find is a, a Backup running to shift his perspective and see exactly what God was going to do. By the way, notice the language. It it says, I go to the watchtower to see what he will say to me. And then he says, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. By the way, notice he says, and and I'm going to look for his answer. And literally it says, to see how he corrects me. To see what he does about my complaint. But literally he says, in order to discipline me, to correct me, to make sure that I see this rightly. I I remember years ago when I was in high school, I took a test to uh, become a tour guide. At uh, the Antietam battlefield or the, the Sharpsburg battlefield uh, there in Maryland. I lived really close to there and I loved history and so I decided to take a test. And one of the things they have there uh, at the Antietam battlefield, if you didn't know this, Antietam battlefield was one of the bloodiest days of any war in, in American history. Uh, on September 17, uh, 1862, 5,500 men died. In, on this road called Sunken Road, now called Bloody Lane. And, uh, and the reason it was called that is because it's like a ditch. And uh, fi- 5,500 men died in four hours there. And it became one of the bloodiest days in, in history. And, uh, and they say the blood, the reason it's called Bloody Lane is because the blood was so high it raced to the horse's bridle. Um, that was the devastation of the Civil War. And so I remember learning this and hearing this history and, and I was wanting to be a tour guide and I thought it would be a, a great job. Then I found out it was volunteer and I was like, I need some money and that wasn't going to work. So I took the test anyway. Um, but one, one of the things they have there is this old watchtower, this, this tower that goes up about 60 feet in the air. Uh, it wasn't actually the original construction, but they believed there was something like that there, and so they recreated it. And the idea was that you could look over the battlefield. Th- then they didn't have all the technology that we have today, of course, in the 1800s. And so you could look over the battlefield, and you could see from different angles where the enemy was coming from. And so if you were uh, a part of the Union soldiers or the Confederates, you could, if you could take the tower, you could see a perspective of the war. And so that tower became of great uh, of great uh, importance. So I was there one one morning on a Saturday and they were doing a Civil War reenactment. Awesome place to do it. Uh, in fact, uh, like Gettysburg, it's a place where reenactors come from all over the country. And remember, while they were showing the battle of Bloody Lane, or Sunken Road as it was originally called, I remember they had a guy, each of the military guys, they, they would fight around this tower, and they would run up the tower, and they run back down the tower. They would run up the tower, they run down the tower. And I thought that was a little peculiar, so I asked, I said, hey, why is the guys running up and down the tower, these reenactors? And they said, because in that day, you would constantly want to not only see what was up, but you have to come down to be able to see and make sure you're reporting what you're seeing. And so they would have runners going up and down the steps to make sure that they were reporting what they were seeing out along the battlefield. I get this perspective of Habakkuk. That's the image, right? Is Here he is in a moment where it seems like God is silent, like God isn't responding the way he expects him to. The news he's getting from God isn't what he wants, and so he is literally going to the tower and saying, God, I'm looking for the answer. You said the enemy's going to come. I'm going to see if I can trust you. And then he says, and I'm going to also be ready for you to correct my complaint. Now for you and I, you might say tonight, okay, Dave, where, what tower do you want me to climb in my circumstance? Uh, are, are you saying to go over to Gorman Nature Center and climb the tower over there? Is that what you're saying? If you haven't visited there, by the way, there's a tower there that you can climb. It's pretty cool, and you can get a perspective. It's just not really high, but you can get a perspective of the entire uh, land. It's a pretty pr- beautiful spot, great dating spot, by the way. When no one's there, great spot to make out with your wife. Seriously, it's a great spot. Here's the point. The point is, in our world today, we can have difficulty seeing what God is doing. And the reason for that is this the moment we wake up, we're bombarded with noise, aren't we? Like if you're a parent, your kids are going to bombard you with noise, that phone is going to ring. That text message is going to come through, that email is going to come through. Right? There's, this, there's this noise, you go to work, there's noise, right? There's constant noise. We have radios and, and, and now with social media, right, we can keep up, right? There's constantly this noise dragging our attentions. And so when things don't go the way we want or God doesn't seem to answer the way we want, what happens, the noise actually creates more confusion instead of clarity. And so for you and I, we don't have a literal watchtower that we can go to. And here, whether it's figurative or not, or literal or not, uh, the idea of the watchtower is that what, what Habakkuk is doing is he's getting a different perspective. And for you and I, it's so important to realize in those moments we question God, in those moments we don't understand, we have to get out the noise to be able to hear and understand what God is doing. So when God gets silent, you and I have a calling then to get silent. I don't know about you, but when it seems like God is silent or God doesn't answer the way I want, I get busy talking. But Habakkuk actually gets silent. He says, I'm going to go watch. I'm going to shift my perspective from the problem that I see in order to see more clearly what you're doing, God. See, we need to stop and listen. Why? Because when God is silent, God isn't still. We saw that in chapter 1, when God is silent, God is still at work. He, he's not still, He's active. And so for you and I, in moments we don't understand what God is doing, in moments where it seems that God is not there, we do well to get alone. We do well to change perspectives. I would encourage you, maybe a change of setting. Maybe it's a moment you've got to get alone in a place where you can just seek God and pray to Him. Maybe for you, a mom, you just need a break from the kids and, and you need to take a walk through the woods and say, God, what, what am I understanding about the situations? If you're in business, maybe it's the time that you take a day off and say, you know what, I'm going to shut off the phone. I'm not going to answer emails. I'm just going to listen to the voice of God. I'm in a, in a moment of chaos. I'm in a moment of confusion. I need to hear what God is speaking. For you, maybe you're a teenager and you've got to shut that phone off. You've got to shut that, that Instagram off. You've got you to stop uh, the snaps that may be coming at you and say, you know what, I'm just going to listen to what God is trying to tell me in a moment of confusion. That's the tower. For Habakkuk, he there was a tower that he knew of, but this was a moment he got alone to say, God, I, I don't want to see my problem. I want to see a different perspective. I want to see what you're going to say. I want to hear you. By the way, this is true all through the scriptures of godly people. I, I love Romans 8. Paul writes this. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice what Paul says there. Paul says, for I consider the suffering right now is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. Notice the word consider. It's the word in Hebrew or it's Greek there, logizomai. And it's the idea of logic, where we get the word lo- logically think about it. What is he doing? He's saying, I consider, I'm counting. I, I'm, the word literally means to count. I'm counting the ways that suffering isn't going to compare to glory. What is Paul doing? He is getting a different perspective. And he is giving them himself that perspective continually. I see my problem, I see the prison, I see the jail, I see the struggle, I see the strife, I see the difficulty, I hear the questions, but now I'm seeing glory. Now I'm understanding what God is taking me on. Now I'm understanding God's perspective of this. I'm thinking about glory over my situation. And that's the picture that we see from Habakkuk. That leads to point two. So we watch. We shift our perspective. That's what Habakkuk does. He says, I'm going to go to the watchtower. I'm going to the tower, and I'm going to look out to see what you're going to say to me. And yes, I know you're going to correct me, God, but I'm willing to hear. I want to hear this. That leads to point two. Write. Write. Anchor your soul. That's number two. To write. Anchor our soul. Notice what happens here. It goes on, and God does answer him. Verse two. And the Lord answered me and says, write the vision Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Notice God commands Habakkuk to write it. To write it down, make it plain, write it on tablets. Now, if you're following the context, what is the vision? Right, He says to write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Well, well, the vision is that the Babylonians are going to come in. And actually, in chapter 2, it's going to continue with a judgment against the Babylonians. We're going to see that as we look next week. God is going to give a judgment to the Babylonians. And so he's calling out the prophet Habakkuk to actually write this out. It's kind of like God responds and says, God says, I'm sending you the Babylonians to judge my people. And Habakkuk says, no, you can't. And God says, no, actually, I'm so sure of it. Why don't you go write it down and don't just write it on paper. Get out some chisel and actually edge it in stone for you. Uh, This is, when you read this, a bit humorous. God is saying, get your chisel out and start hammering away in stone. That's what he says. And in that day, this is kind of historical, but in that day, when they wanted to declare something, they would go and actually make tablets. And they would chisel it out and they would hang it in the marketplace. They would put it in a prominent place where all the people of God could see it and they could declare whatever it is to be true. And and so here, Habakkuk is, is told to write it out actually on stone and, and, and allow other people to see it. So there's two reasons why write it. First of all, so that he will remember it. But secondly, so that those who are in the city could see it, understand it. And notice it says that they can run. Not that they can run away. The point of running is that they run around telling the story. And so he's saying, go tell them that the Babylonians are coming in. It's that certain. Go tell them that I'm going to judge them in this way. Go tell them what I'm about to present to you, which is that Babylon will eventually be judged. Go tell them this. Why? So they may run and spread the news. Spread the news to everybody else around. Exhibit this thing in the marketplace so they understand the, the vision. And even though this realization may be far off, they know that God will be faithful to make it happen. And so he says, go carve it in stone. Now, for you and I, you might say, well, so Dave, what do we do with that? <laughs> okay, I'm going to climb a tower, and now I'm going to chisel something in stone. Yeah, I think we should do that. Literally. We have some stone out there we're going to chisel tonight if you have a problem with God. No, I'm just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. What is the point? The point is two things. I, I see here two different things. First of all, for you and I, there's this idea that what has been given to us by God has been written for us, hasn't it? Like, the fact that we're here tonight talking about and looking in this scripture, opening the Bible together, which is so important as the church, not just man's idea, but what does God's word say? We're looking at this small little prophet. As we read this, God has written this for us. The vision has been written, so I have a template for what I know my life should be. So I know some things in my difficult moments, in my chaotic moments, in my confusing moments. There are things in this book that I can bank my life on. Like I know for certain Christ came and died on a cross. I know that he rose again. I know that he promised that he will come again and it's so certain if he came the first time it'll come the second time that he will come again and take us for his own. I know that. Those things I can make my life on. I know that he says in here, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, he says that one day believers, all of us who confess Christ, will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There's a process. At times we do really well at that. Other times we're way behind on that. But he's conforming us to the image of his son. One day we will be made perfect. So that means that when I'm going through suffering today, I know that he's working out his greater glory tomorrow. Right? I know these things. Why? Because it's written. I have something that's been written for us. We can trust it. You and I can trust the declaration written, not in stone today, but written on these pages. But secondly, not only do we have what's written for us by God, I think it's important for us to write down what God is doing in our lives even every day. In fact, I would dare say what, what Habakkuk is being asked to do is keep a journal. Okay, he's, he's going to write it on a rock. That's a little bit different. But also to remind himself of God's faithfulness. You know, there's something about writing down what God has done in these moments. Why? Because you know we've been in these moments before, haven't we? If you've been in a confusing moment, or you're in a confusing moment, you, I can bet in your life have been in a confusing moment before, haven't you? It's not the first time. And God somehow got you through in that. God somehow provided. You're still here. You're, you're still going forward. Somehow God was faithful in that. And, and what he said he was going to do may not have been what you expected, but it turned out okay. It may not have been comfortable, but it was okay, right? God God still gets the glory in the midst of that. And so writing those things down remind us in the moments we have that are chaotic and confusing, when it seems that God is not speaking, when it seems like his answer doesn't match what we believe, it reminds us of his faithfulness. We can go back and say, God, you were faithful here. You were faithful here. You were faithful here. So I know you're going to be faithful in that moment. By, By the way, for me, that was, as a family, our journey here to Crossroads. Like we started to feel this unsettled feeling in a very comfortable place. It was my hometown. God was doing some amazing things. We had a great church. God, God was changing people's lives. We just felt this unsettled feeling that God was calling us away. And we didn't understand it. What happened? We were banking on past experience of God's faithfulness to say, God, we don't know what you're doing, but we're going to trust you. We don't know where it's going to be. And let me tell you, we didn't expect Ohio. I mean, we were expecting the beaches of Florida. I'm just kidding. We were, we were open. We were willing. And, and I remember the, the angst that we felt in that journey. We felt like we were cheating the church that we loved. We didn't know the unknown. I mean, we, we came to this community not knowing a single person. Like, there's no family here. I never heard of Mansfield, Ohio. Now, I'm not saying that as a, as a martyr. I'm saying that as, a, as God. We were able to bank our lives in the uncertainty of the moment. We banked our lives on we, what we saw God do in the past, that God was faithful to, to use us to proclaim his word. He was faithful to use us for the gospel's sake. And so as we started to walk in the unknown, guess what happened? We had a history of God's faithfulness in the unknown. And that's why it's important to write it down. So for Habakkuk, it was put it in stone, remind everybody, let them know that Babylon's coming, but also write it down to remember... The faithfulness of God in the future. When it seems that God is in that same boat. Write it down. Anchor your soul to the faithfulness of God. That leads to number three, and that is this. Wait. Expect God to work. Thirdly, wait. So we we watch, we write, and we wait. Take a look at what he says in verse three. For still the vision awaits it's a point in time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, there it is, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. He says, wait. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. Anybody here with me? You hate waiting in lines? You don't like waiting for technology to buffer? Watching the U.S. Open in golf, and I hate when I was watching it on my on my iPhone. I hated that it kept buffering, and I'm like, I just want to see the shot. It was always when I want to see that person's shot that it buffered, right? Hate waiting in traffic. Hate, 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 I just hate waiting. Right. It's funny, it reminds me the other, the other week, my, my son, my youngest son plays golf, and he's been playing in tournaments in Columbus, and in and, uh, and, uh, kind of a junior PGA thing, and, and uh, we, were, we went on Monday, Monday's every day off, and that's when all the tournaments are, so it's really a great time uh, for me and my son to get al- alone and kind of talk and be able to spend some time together, and I'm, I'm his caddy, which is really interesting to have to have him tell me what he wants me to do, and yet me be his dad, and, and so it's been a really interesting learning experience, and of course, I still rule the roost, I mean. Um, I mean, if I tell him to hit this club, he's going to hit the club, right? Um, but it's been interesting to say, no, Dad, I like to do this and try to interact that way. It's been a learning experience. But anyway, we were headed down to Columbus. And we were running a little bit late, and I was like, hey, we need to stop. Let's stop and get a drink for the go. And so we stopped, we stopped at McDonald's. Now, I told you last week I probably should never go to McDonald's because they have that creepy clown there. But we stopped at McDonald's. And, and it go through the drive-thru. We noticed you ever do this where you see is the drive through packed or not, and then you determine whether to go in or not? And we noticed the drive-thru had two cars. So we were like, let's go through the drive And so we get up to the drive-thru, we make our order, very quick. All we wanted were some drinks. We we get to the the checkout area, and the person in front of us is having a full-out conversation about their life with the person at the window. And so we sit there. We're waiting. What should have taken literally 60 seconds, and this is not a lie, I'm not exaggerating, it took 15 minutes. At this point, I'd already paid, so I'm like, all right, we've got to figure something out. I thought, do we go in and say, I need my, my, my we need our drinks. If we just order drinks. Do we just say, forget it? That's a donation to that creepy clown. Um, <laughs> what do we do in that moment? I remember sitting there just waiting, and I hated it. I, I was agitated, and, and my son, uh, my 14-year-old son, was like, oh, Dad, it's just, it's cool. We're just waiting. I mean, le- why don't we wind on the window and listen to their conversation, you know? We could. It was really, it's, I hate waiting. We are a giddy-up generation, aren't we? We frown at the person who takes 11 items in the 10-item express checkout. We drum our fingers when the microwave heats our coffee and it doesn't heat it enough. Right? We don't like to wait. That's the point. Here's the thing. What's interesting is our inability to wait causes a lot of problems, doesn't it? Uh, this I-want-it-now society. It causes debt. Debt happens because people don't want to wait. It causes sexual brokenness. Sexual brokenness happens because people don't want to be patient. They don't want to wait. I want it now. I don't think God is calling me to wait. I want to get this. don't I want to earn this or deserve this. And you see this, by the way, in our kids, don't you? It's from a very early age. Right? You ever look at your kids and say to them, not yet? And somehow in their mind they think not yet means no? I, you know, maybe you're taking your kids on vacation. They're like, "Is time for vacation yet? Not yet, not yet. What? Well, what we want to go now? It's just not yet. It's going to happen. It's just not the time yet." See, you and I, as people, we like no, don't we? Because no is concrete. I know the answer. I like yes because I get what I want. But when it, when God says, "Not yet. Wait," we don't like that. It stirs something in us. It it, it rubs us raw a bit when when God says weight, it causes internal turbulence and confusion. So what does it mean when we say, wait on the Lord, right? That sounds spiritual, but what does that really mean? What does it mean when, there's, when a door seems to be opening, or a job opportunity that we're waiting on, or an answer to prayer that we're crying out for, a new direction that we believe our family is being led in? What does it mean to wait in that moment when, when God is, we're saying, God, remove this pain, and it doesn't seem like he's acting, or we're, we're saying, God, heal this relationship, and yet it doesn't seem to be connecting? Why is it that God tends to delay? If you're a parent, you know why, don't you? Right, there's so many parallels between human life and spiritual life. As a parent, I don't give my kids immediately what they want all the time. Why? Because I realize that relationship is built on waiting, isn't it? Like, if you're going to have a healthy relationship, it, does, it requires you at times to wait. In fact, I would dare say if you're here and you're not married, but you're looking to be married, and you have somebody that's not willing to wait for you, they're not willing to be in relationship with. Why, because relationships are built on trust and trust is built on patience. Trust is built on the idea that I'm willing to wait for you. You wanna know whether you're a good match to be married? Are you willing to wait on each other? Are you willing to be patient with each other? Right, trust is built on patience. So here's God. God is saying, I'm in relationship with you but I'm calling you to wait. What happens? Why does God call us to wait? What God is doing is he's not just trying to bring a solution to our problem. What God is doing is trying to bring a a, a spiritual reality to our soul. Let me repeat that. In, In our waiting season, God is not just trying to solve our solution. What God is trying to do is build in us an intentional spiritual reality in our souls. He is working in us, not just for us. He is working in us to make this greater relationship. In fact, that's what he says here. Notice it. Notice verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. What is God calling us to? He's saying, do you trust me? In fact, the word here in Hebrew is the word moed, and it means literally an appointed time, an appointed place, and a appointed meeting. It means it will happen, but when it happens, it will be based upon my time, not yours. So God is calling us in a relationship. He's saying... Are you willing to wait for me? Are you willing to wait for me to answer and trust me in the midst of it? Will you trust me when you don't know what I'm doing? Are you willing to wait? By the way, you and I know all through the scripture this is true, isn't it? Moses, 40 years, and still didn't get to see the promised land. Joseph, decades of waiting before he saw the dream fulfilled. Solomon, building the temple. And yet we see the value of waiting. We I mean, Think about these verses. Psalm 27, David wrote, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The Lord is good to them. Psalm 40, David wrote, I I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see them fear and put their trust in the Lord. What happened? He waited, and what what did God do? Put a new song in his mouth. I love Isaiah 40. By the way, Isaiah uh, was writing earlier about a similar situation. A few years before this, Isaiah 40, it says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run. And they will not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. You know what he's talking about there, by the way, in the context of Isaiah, just very quickly? In Isaiah's day, the people were not doing well before God, and so God says, I'm going to bring judgment. And they said, why does it seem that God is so distant? That's exactly what it said. In fact, in another portion of Isaiah, Isaiah, a few verses earlier, a few chapters, they said this. They said, our way is hidden from the Lord And our right is disregarded by God. That's the way the people felt. The people felt abandoned by God. They had been exiled for, now, in exile for 70 years. And they were wondering, what is God doing? They felt abandoned. They felt they had given up hope. And so what what does God speak? God speaks to the prophet Isaiah to say, let me correct your theology. Let me correct your perspective. No, God is an everlasting God. God isn't bound by 70 years of time. God isn't bound by our timeline. God is an everlasting God. And if you're willing to wait on him, you won't be like the men and youth who would eventually become exhausted. No, instead, in unsearchable understanding, in everlasting energy, in gracious giving, God will help you in seasons of waiting to be like eagles. To fly even when you're waiting. There's a beauty to these waitings. Times of waiting... Are moments for God, right? Times of waiting are inevitable, but they don't have to be miserable, do they? Times of waiting are inevitable, but they do not have to be miserable. So, as we end, what do we do? Okay, watch, write, wait. Well, how do I wait? What does it look like to wait when it seems that God is not answering or God isn't answering the way we think he should? I want to give you just very quickly four thoughts. Number one, pray. Pray. Here we are again. Is the answer always read your Bible and pray? And the answer is yes. Read your Bible, pray every day. Something happens when you do that, right? Read your Bible, pray every day. All of a sudden, we are to pray, right? Pray. I love Romans 12, 12. It says rejoice and hope. Be patient in affliction. Wait in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Pour your heart out to God. Bring your fears, your doubts, your dreams to God. And then be still and listen. See, prayer isn't just crying out. Prayer is listening. See, sometimes we get so eager to make something happen in the midst of our lives that we forget to listen for God to direction. In fact, I would dare say it this further, this step further. Pray until you believe. Because when we go to prayer, we don't know if we believe yet. I would encourage us to pray till we believe. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you've answered this way. But I'm going to pray until I believe that your character is true, that you're faithful. I'm going to pray until I believe it. I'm going to just keep praying. God, I don't understand it. I don't understand your ways, but I'm going to pray. Secondly, not only pray, but praise. Praise. A little bit different than prayer. Not only ask, but now praise the Lord. Respond to God. Praise him for his past faithfulness. Praise him for what he has done in your life. Recall the triumphal moments that God has come through in your lives. By the way, if you're a follower of Christ here today, God has done the most miraculous work already in you. Think about that. In the seasons where I don't know what God is doing, he's already answered the difficult work of saving my soul. And so I can trust him in a season of unknown. I love, as one author said, until God opens the door, praise him in the hallway. Love that. In the seasons of waiting, until God opens the door, praise him in the hallway. Praise his name. Thirdly, prepare. 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 The seasons of waiting are not seasons for wasting. Waitlands don't have to be wastelands. No, in the seasons of waiting, God is not wasting a thing. He is at work behind the scenes. But for you and I, for many of us, when we have seasons of waiting, what do we do? We naturally tend to give up. We naturally tend to stop things. We, we stop reading our Bibles in seasons of waiting. We stop praying. We, we stop connecting in community. We stop coming to church in seasons of waiting where we don't know what God is doing. Our tendency is to stop. Instead, we should be preparing. We should be preparing for what God is going to give to us in the future, what God is going to answer with. We need to be prepared. And waiting is not passive. It's not lazy. Waiting is purpose. Waiting is saying, God, I believe that you have an answer. By the way, notice here in Habakkuk, he, he, he runs to the tower. He, he doesn't wait in despair. He runs to see the answer. Notice, by the way, in, in the tower world, if you were a spy of that day or you were somebody looking out of the land, you would never leave your post. Why? Because if you did and an enemy came, it would be on your head. And so you stayed active. You stayed vigilant. You were watching and saying, God, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to prepare the way so that I know whenever you answer this, I can trust you. I can trust you and I can move on. And that leaves to the last one. And that is this, press on. Press on. Waiting is not an excuse for a lack of obedience here and now. It's a call to press on. You're in a season right now where you're asking God to open a door or close the door. You're asking God for clarity. We're saying, God, what are you doing in my life right now? Press on. Don't stop. Press on. Isn't it true? By the way, in English, the word waiting. Think about in a restaurant we call wait waiters and waitresses, do they actually do, do they stop doing anything in that season? No, waiters and waitresses are constantly moving, they're constantly doing, that's the picture of waiting. In the English, the idea of waiting isn't that we sit still, the idea of waiting is we press on. We keep going, we keep trusting, we believe that God is going to answer down the road. We don't know what he's going to do, but we keep going faithfully. We don't waste our wait. By the way, at times of waiting, it feels as if God doesn't get it, does he? He doesn't understand the human angst of impatience. But then we're reminded that 600 years later, after Habakkuk, there would be a watchman that would go into a tower. The tower was called the garden. And after living for 33 and a half years, he would enter the garden. He would ask the question, he would say, God, is there any way to let this cup pass from me? Right? Jesus brought his angst to the Father. Like, why did God wait so long to bring, put Jesus on the cross? Why not just come not as a baby, but a man? Why did God have him wait so long? There in the garden, he had this season of confusion. God, would you let this come past him? Mean, at any moment, he could have called 10,000 angels. He told Pontius Pilate that in, in his trials. And yet, with resolution, Jesus responded to the Father and says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Is there any way to pass this? Is there any way to get past this? Is there any way we could do another way? And I I would believe the Father sought any other way to save us. But the cross was the answer. And Jesus waited. He waited not for the answer that he would want, right, humanly. He waited for the answer that the Father gave, which is I'm sending you to the cross because I love those people. Listen, we have a God who understands our seasons of waiting. We have a God who is patient we have a Christ who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not distant. No, he understands and he hears the cries in our impatient moments say, God, answer. But then he expects us in the strength of his spirit to say, but not my will. Your will be done, O Father. In the season of waiting, in the season that may be even a crucifixion, I trust in you. Are you waiting? Are you wondering? Watch, watch, write, wait. Pray, praise, prepare for what God is going to do. Press on. Don't stop. Press on. Press through it. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to end with this song, My Confidence. Reminded that our confidence is not in us, it's in God who answers. If you're here and you want to know Christ, you're here and you want to pray with somebody, we have some people at Next Steps that would love to pray and talk with you. Today you can know the Christ who came to die on that cross for you. You can leave here knowing what Christ has done. Maybe you're in a season of the unknown. We would love to pray with you about how God is faithful in the midst of that. We can trust him. We don't see necessarily, but we can trust him. We don't understand, but we can trust him. He'll give you wings like eagles. If we wait, if we watch, if we write. God, we thank you for the example of Habakkuk. God, we've all been in the seasons where it feels like the Babylonians are coming, and we don't know what the answer is going to be, or if we do, we don't like it, and we wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? Do you not understand? Don't you feel what we feel? Don't you ex- understand the experience that we have? And you your God saying, I do, I get it. No, you came to this earth. You walked this earth. It says you were tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. In the garden, you felt the angst and the anxiety of question. And yet you, with preparation and with the, the, the diligence of pressing on, said, but not my will, but yours be, yours be done, Father. And so Christ, we thank you for your example. We pray that we would respond in that same way in the unknown seasons of our lives, in the seasons we don't know and don't understand what you're doing, that we would trust in you, that we would watch diligently in faith, that we would, that we would, write, we would write and see what you've written in your word, but write also what you've done in our lives already. And that we would wait patiently, knowing that you will give us strength like wings of the eagle. All for your name, Jesus Christ, our patient one, our loving one, our confidence in your name. Amen. Let's sing this song to him.